0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 33. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on August 8th, 2021, in Austin, Texas. We're a couple days late this week. I hope you will forgive me. We just got back from a wonderful long vacation in the Adirondacks in upstate New York, with four days in New Orleans on the way home. In my mind, the Adirondacks and the Crescent City are very nearly the opposite ends of the American holiday-destination continuum. And both places will instantly remind even the least observant person that Americans live in an amazing country. Before we begin, I need to confess a bit of trepidation. Until now, this podcast has delved into aspects of the history of the Americans, primarily Spanish exploration that even most American history buffs don't know a lot about. Neither did I until I did the work for the podcast. That means that my errors, whatever they may have been, have mostly gone unremarked upon or even undetected. Now that we're moving into the English colonial period, as we have in the last couple of weeks, I expect to raise more eyebrows, by which I mean make more visible mistakes that you pick up, especially in the significance I assign to one or another historical factoid. By all means, hold me accountable. If I blow it or just offend your cranky sensibilities in some way, shoot me an email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or comment on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. The title of this episode is Sir Francis Drake and the Rise of English Sea Power, Part 1. As always, I'm going to follow my muse so I'm not settled on how many episodes to do on Drake, who is both very important to the history of the Americans and, for my money, super cool and interesting. That may be controversial as a Drake hot take, as it were, but I'll make the case, and as usual, you will decide. I've been advanced blurbing Drake off and on for weeks, and he played a supporting role in episode 21 of this podcast, A Pirate's Tale which dropped on us three months ago. There are a bunch of reasons I'm a Drake fanboy. First, Drake was the first European to explore and stake a claim to the northwest coast of the United States, and, this bit is quite controversial, he may even have made it to the Alaskan coast. He therefore fits right in within the mandate of the podcast, the history of the lands that now constitute the United States. So Drake's voyage around the world rates an episode merely for that. Second, and more importantly, Drake critically enabled English settlement in the United States. First, by confronting the Spanish at every important point along the edges of their new world empire, and thereby provoking them into war with England, and then by winning that war. Finally, Drake was just incredibly cool, at least for a religiously zealous pirate, let me count the ways. If anyone can be said to be the father of English sea power, it is Drake. He was, arguably, the original English pirate of the Caribbean, so without Drake, no Captain Jack Sparrow. And yet, Drake developed the reputation, even among his Spanish victims, for humanity and honor and victory, often releasing Spanish sailors with good humor and lavishing parting gifts from the treasure he stole from their king, Philip II, literally right out from under them. For two decades after his first successful mission in 1571, no meaningful English naval expedition without Drake succeeded, and most of those with Drake were wildly profitable or militarily victorious, or both. From 1577 to 1580, Drake circumnavigated the globe, only the second European captain to accomplish it. Unlike Magellan, Drake survived, and virtually his entire crew did as well. On that voyage, he proved that South America was not attached to Antarctica, which was the prevailing hypothesis of the age. The strait between the two continents is known to this day as Drake's Passage. Along the way, he captured an unbelievable amount of Spanish treasure, claimed a territory in the northwestern United States for England and broke the Portuguese monopoly on trade in the Spice Islands of the Malaccas. As you know if you listened to episode 21, which I recommend you do, Drake began his life at sea on the crew of a slaving ship captained by his cousin, John Hawkins. That voyage ended catastrophically on the coast of Mexico, and Drake barely made it home. Yet a few years later, Drake established a productive alliance with black slaves who had escaped from the Spanish in Central America, and in something of an amazing grace moment developed a redeeming respect for his black allies that they returned in kind. Drake did not trade in black slaves again and freed them when he found them on captured Spanish and Portuguese ships. Most importantly for the history of the Americans, Drake provoked the Spanish into war with England and then twice beat the Spanish Navy, once by ambushing a good part of it in port in 1587, and then doing more than any other English commander to beat the famous Spanish Armada the next year. Had that war gone the other way, England might never have become a global naval power, and thereby an empire. The English language might never have become the lingua franca of commerce around the world. An English settlement in North America would have unfolded very differently if it had happened at all. Drake, through all of this, became a true self-made man, mixing passionate Protestantism with ambition and hard work. He made, by which I mean, stole a fortune and climbed an enormous social distance in the very class-bound society of 16th-century England. In this regard, Drake was very much a precursor in spirit of English North Americans, except perhaps for the stealing part, and even that is much open to argument. In fairness, though, Drake was stealing from thieves. So on to the story, then. At some date between 1538 and 1540, Francis Drake was born into the family of Edmund Drake in the west country town of Tavistock, just east of Cornwall, and just north of Plymouth. We know a great deal about the life of Francis Drake, but surprisingly to me at least, we do not know the date and year of his birth. The Drakes were distantly related to other families in the west country, including that of the famous sailor and pirate John Hawkins, a relationship that would have long consequences. At any rate, Drake spent his boyhood there, but in 1549, Edmund took his family to Kent in southeastern England. The Drakes were Protestants, and the Catholics in the West Country were rising up in rebellion against the first act of uniformity under the boy king of Edward VI, which established the Church of England as the state church. In later years, Drake said that his family left Havistock because of that rebellion which made it dangerous for Protestants in the area. Edmund found a home of sorts in the hull of an abandoned ship either moored or beached near the mouth of the River Medway. Here, in the words of biographer John Sugden, young Francis absorbed the sights and sounds of the sea. The Medway, in effect, merges with the Thames as it flows into the English Channel, so Drake must have seen every sort of ship that plied those waters from the king's warships to merchantmen, to family fishing vessels. The Drakes did not escape religious strife in Kent. By the mid-1550s, the Catholic Mary Tudor was on the throne, the act of uniformity repealed, and Kentish Protestants were in rebellion or on the run. Bloody Mary Tudor burned at least 54 local Protestants at the stake, and many more were persecuted or fled abroad. Drake would emerge from his impressionable teenage years as an uncompromising Protestant, with no love of Philip of Spain, who had married Mary and was therefore King of England. That religiosity and dislike of Philip would eventually evolve into a passionate commitment to defend the Protestant Reformation and vex Philip II from one end of his empire to the other. Drake would do both without peer. When news of Drake's death in 1596 reached a sick and tired Philip II, Sugden writes, the tired face flickered with a delight his servants had rarely seen. It is good news, said Philip II, and now I will get well. Thus did the ruler of the greatest empire the world had yet seen acknowledge for the final time that a sailor from a diminutive but insolent island had reached out and humbled him. But it is still only the mid-1550s. Edmund Drake apprenticed his teenage son to the owner and master of a small coasting bark that ferried freight to and fro, occasionally to France or the Low Countries, and probably served to pilot larger ships in local waters. As it happens, the bark's owner had no family and came to regard Francis as a son, When the owner died, he left Francis his possessions, including the bark. About this time, probably the early 1560s now, as French Protestants were encroaching on Spanish La Florida, and while Pedro Menendez was hunting them down, see episodes 27 and 28 for the gory details, Francis resolved to return to the West Country whence he had come as a boy. He sold the bark, moved to Plymouth, and there he connected with his cousins, William and John Hawkins. The Hawkins brothers owned ships and were part of a regional elite that would become the tip of England's spear and eventually important promoters of English colonization in North America over the next few decades. In 1564, Drake served as a purser on Hawkins' trading mission to northeastern Spain, the job was not quite as portrayed by a gopher on the love boat. Per Sugden, the purser represented those owners who did not accompany their ships and safeguarded their interests, superintending the financial aspects of a voyage, paying crews, discharging customs duties, and accounting for cargoes. Drake, as a man of education and experience, and through his relationship to the Hawkins brothers, would have been a natural choice for such a position. That mission set Drake up for a career with the Hawkins brothers, a partnership that would ebb and flow over the next quarter century, and which would reverberate through the history of the Americans. Devoted and attentive listeners will have pieced together the geopolitical environment in the early 1560s, but we're all about context here and a little repetition never hurt anybody, so here goes. Elizabeth I had ascended to the throne of England with Mary Tudor's death at the end of 1558, and the Protestants were back in power in London. In 1559, Elizabeth enacted the Second Act of Uniformity, and that same year, Sweden embraced Lutheranism. Protestantism was rising in Germany, and France blew up into religious civil war, which never goes well. The Low Countries, today's Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg, more or less, were still ruled by Spain and officially Catholic. But rebellious Dutch nobles converted to Protestantism and sought and obtained support from confessional allies in England and elsewhere. The Catholic Church was back on its heels, and as theological conflict blossomed into shooting war, its staunchest supporter in the world of men, Philip II of Spain, stepped forward to defend the papacy and the old-time religion. Now let's go back to John Sugden for a nice description of Philip in comparison to Drake. Philip was a little under 30 years of age when he succeeded his father to become king of Spain and its wide dominions in 1556. His inheritance was vast, principally Spain itself, the Netherlands, part of Italy, and most of the new territories of South and Central America. In some respects, Philip was not unlike the man Francis Drake was becoming. He, too, wove the interests of God and country into one, and believed himself an instrument of both. Drake was to emerge as a Protestant hero for the New England Elizabeth was forging. Philip, no less earnestly, promoted the Catholic faith, hoping to protect his people from the fate that ultimately met all heretics— and to advance the country's imperial ambitions at the same time. But apart from the undoubted energy and religious zeal that propelled both men, there were few other parallels between the Devonshire seaman and the powerful king. Where Drake grew bold, confident, and decisive, Philip was tortured with indecision and self doubt, agonizing over each move he made. I suppose this difference in decisiveness might not entirely reflect the different characters of the two men, but also their different positions. Drake was a commoner, and while fortunate in his distant relatives, he had no family property or status to preserve. He could take great risks for great gain, because he had little to lose at a time when biological lives were not the be-all and end-all of existence, or even the purpose of existence. Philip was in a very different position. He had inherited a vast empire and the burden of defending God's church on earth. He was, by birth, in charge of a great institution, and its preservation and glorification was an enormous burden. Both men had cognitive styles that derived from their position in the world. Decisiveness was not, though, the end of their personality differences, Back to Sugden. While Drake swaggered his decks, gregarious and assertive and full of cheer, lonely Philip toiled night and day at his desk, filling the margins of the countless papers that passed before him with a wandering scrawl that testified that few details escaped the king's attention. In his solitude, too, he dwelt upon the private tragedy of his life. By 1570, he had been thrice married. And thrice widowed, and his only heir had been Don Carlos, so vindictive, so idiotic and irresponsible an heir, that he was imprisoned by the order of his own father. There's a lesson for parents in there somewhere, I'm sure, but I'll leave it to you to decide what it is. Sugged so in again. Whatever his personal life may have been, Philip was a dutiful king with an astonishing capacity for work. He attempted to deal as justly with his people as he knew, and strove for the imperial and national integrity of his country. Partly because of it, his relations with the papacy were turbulent. The popes relied upon Philip, but they seldom trusted him, fearing that religion was for him a convenient mask for secular and, as they saw it, baser ambitions. Nevertheless, both parties needed the other. Without the strength of Philip, the Counter-Reformation lacked teeth. For his part, Philip was a devout Catholic, determined to unite his dominions beneath one faith. Not for him was the path of toleration. The Great Spanish Empire depended upon the fabulous wealth of the New World. There were ships full of gold and silver directly from the New World but also the profits from plantation crops and trade from China and elsewhere in East Asia, which Spain had by the 1560s established from the west coast of Mexico. The gold and silver especially traveled in two big treasure fleets, up to 70 vessels in convoy. One dispatched each spring to Veracruz in Mexico and the other to the east coast of Panama. Outgoing fleets known to the Spanish as flotas would carry supplies from Europe needed by colonial Spain, and returning fleets, which congregated at Havana before making the Atlantic crossing, would bring back precious metal, pearls, plantation crops, and luxuries from China. In short, the thinly populated Caribbean islands and Spanish Main, which refers to the mainland coast of Central and South America, were centers of great wealth and trade in and of themselves, and of great geopolitical importance because they supported the Spanish war machine in Europe. The Spanish tried to protect it all in three ways. First, they organized the FLOTAs to minimize piracy on the Atlantic crossing. Second, they built coastal defenses and organized local militia as best they could, given the constraint that there really weren't very many actual Europeans in the area with fighting-age men usually numbering only in the hundreds, even in the most important cities. Finally, the government allowed only Spanish merchants to trade duty-free, and only the Portuguese to trade if they paid their taxes. Not surprisingly, the Spanish Caribbean attracted illicit traders, smugglers, privateers, and pirates. These seaborne entrepreneurs differed only subtly— and some would behave as illicit traders in one moment and pirates in another. Privateers were effectively pirates operating under the deniable authorization of another monarch. They had a piece of paper that prevented them from being prosecuted at home as pirates, but the issuing monarch would deny that authorization if the Spanish caught them. Portuguese and French smugglers, pirates, and privateers had been operating in the region since the 1520s. The Portuguese controlled the west coast of Africa, and Portuguese smugglers supplied blacks into slavery to feed the insatiable demand for labor in Spanish mines and on Spanish plantations. France, which had been at war or in geopolitical conflict with Spain for much of the century, dispatched privateers and unlicensed pirates against the Caribbean with ever greater intensity. Very long-standing listeners will remember that Giovanni Verrazzano, sailing to the east coast of the United States on behalf of France in 1524, avoided the canaries on his crossing because the Spanish were already hunting for pirates flying the fleur de lis By the 1550s, French privateers had even captured, albeit temporarily, Cartagena and Havana. As we have seen, the English were late to this party. After an early start in the New World under Henry VII, Henry VIII had looked to the continent and took economic dislocation and the rise of a new class of English merchant adventurers under Edward VI and Mary Tudor to reignite English mercantile ambition. Even so, the first big success had pointed east to Russia, and the investors in London's Moscovy Company were more interested in finding a northwest or northeast passage to China than developing the Americas per se. The English had, in fact, engaged in some Atlantic trade. As early as the 1530s, William Hawkins had traded illegally in Portuguese Africa for ivory and other commodities. And also along the coast of Brazil. These ventures stayed out of the Caribbean and did not threaten the Spanish. But the family Hawkins built up a fleet and sailing culture in Plymouth. It was old William's sons, William and John, who engaged Francis Drake. By 1664, while Drake was liquidating his inheritance and moving back to Plymouth, John Hawkins had sailed twice to West Africa, bought or stole trade goods including slaves captured from Portuguese slave traders, and sailed to the Spanish Main to sell them illegally. Bribes opened the ports to unlicensed traders, and in this regard, John Hawkins made profitable business. When word got back to Spain, however, the bureaucracy made it known that Spanish colonial officials who permitted trading with the English would be punished. Spain protested to Elizabeth... And wanting to avoid escalating, she forbade Hawkins from leaving England, at least for the time being. Nevertheless, in November 1566, Hawkins dispatched a captain in his employ, John Lovell, to lead a fleet of three ships on another illicit triangular mission. Drake was along as an officer on one of the ships. Lovell's ship sailed to the Cape Verde Islands and captured a couple of Portuguese ships, Prizes being the term for ships captured in piracy. Laden with valuable commodities and African slaves. This was Drake's first naval engagement, although we have no idea what he did or how well he did it when actually in action. In any case, Lovell sailed to the Caribbean and, well, failed to sell anything. The Spanish officials now had the fear of the law, and Lovell's fleet wasn't powerful enough to motivate them to take a bribe to save their own skins. Lovell ended up releasing a hundred or more captured Africans on the coast and sailed home at a financial loss. Drake, wiser now, was to return. By September 1567, while Juan Pardo was mucking around in the Carolinas and the Spanish were building their forts along the coast of La Florida. Elizabeth must have decided that she had mollified Philip enough for the time being, because John Hawkins was fitting out a powerful fleet in Plymouth. Among his investors were the Queen's closest advisor, William Cecil, and Elizabeth put up one of her own ships, the Aging Jesus of Lubbock. For the next mission, Drake sailed as a senior officer on the Jesus In early October, the fleet, flying the Red Cross of England and loaded with English cloth to trade, sailed south, reaching the west coast of Africa and Cape Verde in December. Hawkins grabbed a couple of small Portuguese prizes and put Drake in charge of one of them, his first command since he had inherited the old bark in Kent. Hawkins also hooked up with a couple of French privateers who joined the fleet. Then they went looking for slaves to capture for export to the Americas. After a couple of hapless attempts to capture slaves from the Portuguese, Hawkins negotiated an alliance with a local tribe on the coast in Sierra Leone to support their ongoing war against another tribe. The alliance was quickly victorious with only minimal English casualties and divided the surviving enemy between them. This netted the Hawkins' fleet something like 250 slaves, sufficient to make the trip if sold on the Spanish main. By February, the fleet was sailing west. Over the next six months, Hawkins and his fleet tortured the Spanish up and down the mainland. They grabbed towns and held them for ransom, and by what were now credible threats... They forced the local officials to allow them to sell trade goods and African slaves, which were in high demand in Spanish settlements because so many Indians had died, and the church now frowned upon enslaving those that had survived. With most of the slaves sold, the rest put ashore on a load of treasure and other valuables. In early August 1568, 453 years ago this week, the French partners took their leave and the English fleet sailed into the Gulf of Mexico and headed for home. As long-standing listeners have known since episode 21, the mission would end in catastrophe. On August 12th, karmic payback in the form of a hurricane, you can't see my shock face, but trust me, I have it on, smashed the fleet. For eight days, the crews worked night and day to stay afloat, Manning pumps and cutting away the castles and upper structures to relieve the pressure on the hulls. Fish were seen swimming in the holds, and leaks were desperately plugged with anything that would plug. When the skies finally cleared, Hawkins' ships were afloat, but barely, and had no chance of making the Atlantic crossing without extensive repairs. The fleet spotted the Gulf Coast, we do not know where and followed it along looking for a suitable place to anchor in a beach to repair the ships. There was none. Then on September 12th, the fleet spotted a Spanish ship and made contact. The Spaniard was bound for San Juan de Ulua, the harbor for Veracruz and the only suitable port along the coast of Mexico. Hawkins learned from the Spaniard that the flota was due there any day and knew that he could not win a confrontation with it but was by then so desperate he had no alternative. The English set sail for San Juan de Lua and limped in on September 15, 1568. From here, the story is familiar to those of you who are all caught up in so far as I read Samuel Balfe's account in episode 21. Hawkins sailed into the small, poorly defended harbor, sent men to seize control of the shore batteries, and dispatched a message to the Spanish authorities in nearby Veracruz saying that he meant no harm, would depart peacefully once his ships were repaired, and would pay fairly for supplies that he needed to repair and victual his fleet. Unfortunately for all concerned, on September 17th, 13 armed Spanish ships appeared on the horizon. The flota had arrived, and Hawkins had made scant progress repairing his fleet. It further turned out that the new incoming viceroy of Mexico, Don Martin Enriquez, was on board. A standoff ensued. The Spanish had more firepower than the beleaguered English ships, but Hawkins controlled the shore batteries. Militarily, he could deny the Spanish entry into their own harbor, but that would constitute an indisputable act of war, one that England almost certainly would have lost in 1568. Worse, Viceroy Enriquez, just at the beginning of his term, could not afford to let the English go lest he forever be considered a wimp. A standoff ensued with tense negotiations. The two sides exchanged hostages to ensure good faith and struck a deal. Hawkins would retain control of the shore batteries. The Spanish would be permitted to enter their own harbor, and the English were given assurances that they could repair their fleet in peace and be on their way. The flota entered the small and crowded harbor, and for six-tenths days the English feverishly worked to repair their ships, while both sides maintained superficially cordial relations. Viceroy Enriquez, however, was not even remotely content. In fact, he was enraged, and from his point of view it is easy to see why. He sent a messenger to Veracruz commanding that soldiers be dispatched and under cover of darkness on September 21st, more than 120 fighting men were smuggled onto the Spanish ships. The Spanish cut gun ports into the sides of some of the merchantmen, quietly preparing an ambush. On September 23rd, the English caught wind of these preparations and demanded an explanation. The jig being up, Enrique's attacked. A brutal six-hour firefight at very close quarters ensued, and hundreds of men on both sides perished. Drake's ship, the diminutive bark Judith, was nearest to the harbor's entrance and farthest from the Spanish and took the least damage. The battered Jesus of Lubbock started to sink, along with most of the rest of the English ships. And as the battle progressed, Hawkins released his ten Spanish hostages— transferred as many men and as much treasure as he could to the one other surviving ship, the Minion, and moved out of the harbor. The Spanish were too battered to pursue. When the smoke cleared the next morning, Drake's Judith was nowhere to be seen. The disappearance was no doubt distressing to Hawkins. He limped east but concluded that he did not have enough food and water to survive the voyage back to England. In Segdon's account, so bleak seemed the prospect of surviving the homeward run that half the men asked to be put ashore. They would rather confront the Indians, the wilderness, and the Spaniards. To learn their dire fate, I'll again send you to episode 21. The Judith and the Minion both made it back to England, limping into port only a few days apart in January 1569. The significance of the brutal battle of San Juan de Ulua was less direct and yet more consequential than one might imagine. It was first blood between England and Spain, but war did not break out between the two for another 20 years. Spain had more important distractions, including the ongoing struggle against Islam in the Mediterranean and the ever-present desire not to push England into an alliance with its most powerful adversary in Europe the Kingdom of France. England, for its part, had no chance of winning a wider war in 1569 and had its own worries in Scotland and Ireland. However, the Spanish betrayal, as the English saw it, gave Francis Drake a new purpose. Sugden sums it up nicely. Drake emerged a new man from the carnage and smoke of San Juan de Ulua. He had reached a crossroads. Hitherto, his memories of the reign of Philip and Mary, the story his father had told of the family's flight from the Catholic insurgents in Devon, and his Protestant background had left him with little liking for the enemies of his faith and his country. He, like a shipmate, had joined in the extreme denunciation of the Pope heard in daily religious services aboard the Old Jesus. All this was now sharpened by a deep sense of personal grievance over the mortifying treachery of the Viceroy of New Spain. Drake had seen the fruits of a year's toil wither before Spanish gunfire, the English ships sunk or surrender, and he had fled for his life. Good friends had died, and for all Drake knew, as the Judith made for home, Hawkins and the men of the Minion were among them. It can hardly be doubted that as he struggled over the wintry Atlantic swells, Drake was coming to an important decision. It was time for another way, Drake's way. For the rest of his life, Francis Drake pictured himself an Avenger, bent upon rewarding the treachery of Don Martin Enriquez. It must have seemed a futile, an almost presumptuous decision at the time, but it put a fire into the obscure little sea captain defeated and dishonored. On the pitching Judith... Brooding upon his misfortunes, Francis Drake declared war upon the King of Spain. I'll chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round perdition's flames before I give him up. The broader significance of the battle lies in the impact it had on the West Country, upon the mariners who survived it and upon the families who mourn the loss of their relatives and friends. It was they who would lead the onslaught against Spain, and they who were to find in Francis Drake their boldest leader. Shizzle was about to get real. Next time we will look at the first big battles of Drake's war, an adventure that would make him infamous among the Spanish, a national hero for the English, and which would redeem Drake's honor. Until then... Thank you, as always, for listening. If you are enjoying this podcast, and I hope you are, please tell your friends in person or through the fraught intermediation of social media. And keep those figurative cards and letters coming via email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com, on the Facebook page for the History of the Americans podcast, or by commenting on the still scruffy website for the podcast, The History of the Americans dot com.